Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, verse 2, the people of old, that's the Old Testament people, received their commendation. God liked what they did because they lived by faith. By faith, verse 3, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. In other words, something uh, invisible, God created everything that we see. By faith, verse 4, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, verse 5, Enoch was taken up so that he could not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, verse 6, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. All right, let's go to the Lord, pray, and ask him to bless us in our study today. Father, we do pray, we come to you, and we ask that you would teach and speak to us today. We, at the end of the day, don't want to merely understand faith. We want to live by faith. We want to live that exciting, glorious, on the front lines, wonderful experience of stepping out in ventures of faith with you. Lord, you've helped us, those of us that are believers, to place our faith in you for salvation. But we pray that you'd help us now, Lord, to continue to live by faith, to continue to trust you, to continue to lean our whole being upon you so that you could do, Lord, wonderful things here on earth in part through our lives, not for our glory, Lord, but for yours and for your kingdom. So we pray that you would do that within us, that you would help us, Lord, and strengthen us, and that you'd use these studies in Hebrews chapter 11 to bolster, encourage, and launch us out into the things that you have designed for our lives. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Well, it's been said that we have one life to live. One opportunity to live a life of trust and faith in the Lord. In fact, Scripture backs up this concept when Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that we as Christians should abide in three things, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these, he says there, is love. What he meant by that in its context is that love is something that's eternal and always necessary in a work of faith. But love will last forever. There will come a day where we see, believers, God face to face. We're going to see him and witness him and be in his full kingdom and glory. And in that moment, I will love God, but I will not be walking by faith in God, and I will no longer be hoping in the consummation, the coming of his kingdom. It's only right now that I can walk by faith. It's only during this era of my life that I can live with faith and hope and trust in the living God. And so the question, will I be a person who walks and lives by faith? Now, so far in the book of Hebrews, I want to read to you what we have learned. We have learned that Jesus is the ultimate word. We have learned that Jesus brought our great salvation, is our great Savior, stepped down so we could step up, offers the fullest 
life, brings us into true rest, makes us God's, makes God's help available to us, can be our best friend, that Jesus is our best pursuit, that Jesus is our best anchor for life, that Jesus is the best priest, that Jesus brought a better covenant, that Jesus sets us free to serve God, that Jesus is the better sacrifice, and that Jesus offers us the best race to run. These are the things we've learned in the last 14 weeks as we've looked into the wonderful book of Hebrews. But the question at this point is, with all of this knowledge, with all of this truth, what kind of people is Jesus trying to build? Who is he trying to shape? What is he trying to bring out of our lives as we reflect on and think about these great truths and promises that he's given to us in his word? What we saw last week is that we live in times where we must press into the Lord. And we must, as he said at the end of chapter 10, learn to be people who walk by faith. That's the kind of person that God is trying to build. He's trying to build a people of faith. Faith people are those who venture out in obedience to God, risking safety and their perception of security for God and his kingdom. Faith people say yes to God in ways small and great. And Hebrews chapter 11 is the author's way of teaching us what this life of faith looks like so that Jesus might create that same kind of trust and confidence in him in and through our own lives. Let's read the two verses that conclude chapter 10 again, just so we can get our minds in that place afresh. He said in verse 38 of chapter 10, my righteous one shall live by faith. This is a quotation from Habakkuk chapter two. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So the question is, which camp do you wanna be in? Do you want to be those who shrink back or you do, do you want to be those who by faith move forward, by faith live before God, by faith preserve their souls? Do you want to be a person of faith? You guys with me? I want to be a person of faith. I want to trust the Lord. I want to step out in faith with the Lord. So today we're going to learn a few things about faith. I'm going to show you from these verses six different things as we look at this great book or this great chapter uh, of faith. Now, probably you've noticed already, even as we read through those first seven verses, that there are different characters that are mentioned throughout this chapter. What the author's going to do is point backward to the Old Testament saints and how they lived and walked by faith. And today we're going to go all the way up to Noah and the Noahic flood. So really what we're looking at are the, is the antediluvian or the pre-flood era. We're going to look at creation. We're going to look at Abel. We're going to look at a man named Enoch and also Noah himself. But before that, notice verse 1. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This sounds like a definition of faith. The reason it sounds like a definition of faith is because he says, now faith is, and then he says these things. But if you're anything like me, the first time I read the book of Hebrews, I came to this phrase, now faith is, and I thought, okay, here it is. I got a definition of faith that he's about to unload on me. And then he says this thing, it's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And it kind of confused me a little bit. It didn't really sound like a theological definition for faith. I didn't read anything about God's word, God's promises, and trusting in God's promises, believing in God's promises, leaning upon the gospel itself. I didn't read anything about that. I just see assurance and conviction about things hoped for and things not seen. It seems that the author is less interested in giving us a theological definition for faith, but it, what he wants to tell us about is what happens when true faith gets inside the heart of a human being. What blossoms, what blooms, are these words, assurance and conviction. 
People with faith walk around knowing that there is an unseen realm and an unseen God who has made promises to them and they have believed in those promises and their lives outwardly are changed because of what has happened inwardly. It's kind of like thinking about the definition of photosynthesis. And I don't ask me to give you a working definition of photosynthesis. I remember doing a report when I was like in fourth grade where I tried to feed a plant, you know, seven up and water and put one in the closet and put one out in the sun. I just know photosynthesis is good for plants. But I'm sure there's some kind of great scientific definition where if you looked it up, it'd be a very complete you know, story or accounting of this is what photosynthesis is in the life of a plant. It receives nutrients this way. This is how it operates. This is how it works. But you and I might describe it like this. When it happens, it grows. Fruit comes. Good stuff occurs as a result of that photosynthesis taking place. And that seems to be what the author is focused on when he thinks about faith. He's not getting into a theological definition of it, but saying, this is what I know. When it occurs in the life of a believer, when they trust the Lord, when they hear about his character and his nature and his promises, and they believe it, it impacts their life. Something begins to grow. It is conviction. It is assurance. Something outward is manifested as a result of what is taking place inwardly in their lives. You could say it like this, the author is trying to show us what a person who lives in the light of God's character and God's truth looks like. A person like that has a confidence, has a conviction, has an assurance in their lives. Now think about the book of Hebrews. The author has been telling these Jewish Christians that they did not need to any longer go to the temple to offer physical sacrifices and engage in a priesthood that they could see with their own eyes because they had something and someone better than all of that. He's told them, you have a better sacrifice in what Jesus offered and a better temple in what resides in heaven and a better throne room of God, a better presence of God, a holy of holies in God's presence himself. And you have a better way to get there by the blood of Jesus. And you have a better high priest in Jesus Christ. But the thing is, though all of those things are better, they could not see them with their eyes. And so he's telling them, when you begin to believe and trust what I'm saying to you, it will create an assurance and a conviction that what you actually have in that unseen realm is better than anything that is seen here on earth. Now, because of this, we must learn that faith is not some things as well. If it is assurance and conviction, that means it is not self-will. In other words, sometimes people try to conjure up faith. I need to conjure up belief in God. No, faith is built upon God. It is built upon his character. It is built upon his word and promises. It is not blind optimism. It is not manufactured hope. It is not superstitious positive thinking. You know, put it on your refrigerator, the picture of what you want to look like, and just keep wishing that you look that way. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, it's built on the foundation of who God is. Listen to this line or this paragraph from a scholar named Thomas Schreiner in his commentary on Hebrews. He said it like this. He said, faith is introduced because the flip side of apostasy, which we looked at last week in chapter 10, is faith. The author doesn't ask the readers to look to themselves and to summon up all their energy to persevere until the end. What it means to endure is to keep trusting God until the end. Endurance comes when we look to God for strength and put our trust in his promises. Faith means we put our trust in what God has promised even if those promises seem impossible to us. Chapter 11 reminds us that we are not the first to take this journey. Many have walked this path of faith ahead of us, and thus we are not alone in our journey of faith. Maybe an example of this would be something very simple. The Lord says, call unto me. The life of faith says, I know who God is, 
I know what he has said, therefore I have a confidence, a conviction, and an assurance about him, so I will call unto him. I will pray to him. I will cry out to him because of who he said he is. So the first thing that I want you to see here is that faith unlocks, number one, assurance by trusting God and his promises. It unlocks assurance by trusting God and his promises. I hope that this is stirring up in you a little bit of excitement of what your life could look like if there was a little more faith in operation, a little more confidence in who God is, a little bit more assurance built upon his promises, not you and your ability, not you and your strength, not you and your ingenuity, but upon God, upon who he says he is. It unlocks that assurance. All right, let's go on in the passage and see a second thing. Verse two, it says, for by it the people of old received their commendation. That's all of verse two. That's all it says. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Now, he's writing to Hebrew Christians. The Old Testament to them was their friend. The Old Testament should be our friend as well, but sometimes it's a little intimidating. But many of these people were raised in it. They were steeped in it. So they knew the stories of the Old Testament. By the way, if you're a parent here today, get your little kids as you're raising them up, get them into the stories of the Bible. Find yourself a picture Bible or a comic book Bible or a simple Bible and just get them into the stories of the Bible. I know that so many of those old picture book Bibles, they don't have the epistles in them or if they do, they have like a page with like a scroll drawn on it and it says like Paul wrote epistles when he was here, 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 and here. And John wrote epistles when he was here, 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 and here. But don't worry about that. You can take your kids through the epistles yourself, but tell them the stories of the Old Testament. Familiarize them with these friends. The Hebrew Christians though, they knew these characters. And the author says that what they did was they lived in the Old Testament era, these friends in the Old Testament, they lived by faith. And because of that, they received their commendation. That's a way of saying that God celebrated, God praised, God rejoiced over their lives because they lived by faith. Now, as we move through this chapter over the next weeks, there are going to be moments where we read about an Old Testament character and their act of faith, and we'll see God commending them, praising them, celebrating the faith that they exhibited. And some of you are going to be familiar with the full Old Testament story. And as you think about what God has said about these people hundreds and thousands of years after they lived their lives, you might have a little bit of a hesitation Because there will be moments where you say, now here's God commending, for example, a man like Abraham or a woman like Sarah for their great and abiding faith. But you're going to, in your mind, go back to the Old Testament story and say, now they didn't always live, though, by faith. There was a lot of doubting. There was a lot of disobedience. There was a lot of falling short of the faith that God wanted them to live. And as you read this story, you might say, now what's the deal with God? Does he have some kind of selective memory? Does he not know that they failed in faith? No, he knows just fine. It's just that through the eyes of grace, he does not recount that. He recounts their acts of faith. And that should be a great encouragement to all of us. Because we are not going to live the life of faith flawlessly and perfectly. In fact, if I could say it like this, what we are going to notice with most of these characters is that their faith moment was just that, a moment. They believed in the Lord, they trusted in the Lord, they walked with the Lord, but then a moment of decision came. And it is that moment that God would celebrate. It is that moment that God would praise. We should not think of all of these people constantly, always, for all of their lifetime living in rock-solid faith before God. No, they wavered from time to time, just as we might waver in our own lives from time to time today. It says in Jude, verse 22, that we should have mercy on those who doubt. Isn't that a fascinating verse? We should have mercy on those who doubt. You see, our faith isn't always perfect. Our faith isn't always flawless. We wrestle, we're betwixt, but God looks 
favorably upon those moments where we make a decision of faith. Well, what I want you to see here is number two, that faith leads to specific action. Faith leads to specific action. You see, for all of these characters that we're going to look at, there came a moment of decision. I'm going to do something in response to what God has asked of my life. Like I said, these are moments. Some have called this the hall of faith. I'm gonna try not to call it the hall of faith. When I think of the hall of faith, I think of the hall of fame. And when I think of the hall of fame, I think of various hall of fame for various sports that exist. And when I think of athletes that make it into the hall of fame, I think of athletes who for a long period of time were highly successful in their sport. The hall of faith is more like this. If you were to take baseball as an illustration, maybe a player who wasn't all that good who kind of just struggled to get to the big leagues in the first place, built kind of a meager career, but one day had an incredible hit, an incredible home run that no one could forget. That's a little bit more what these characters are like. They're struggling along in their lives, but there are moments where they exhibit their great faith before the Lord. But it was specific action that was developed that caused them to step out in obedience to the Lord. And as we move through Hebrews chapter 11, I guarantee you, there will be moments where the Holy Spirit drops a specific action into your life and into your heart. And there will be moments throughout your Christian life where the Lord puts a specific action into your life and into your heart and says, do you trust me? Do you believe in me? Are you willing to allow your life to be restructured a little bit for me and for my kingdom? And in those moments, it is right for us to step out in faith, because as we see here, God commends it, God loves it. Now the third thing I want you to see is found in verse three, and it's this. Number three, faith is confident in God's word. Faith is confident in God's word. Let's read verse three together. It says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, first things first, he launches in now to the meat of this chapter by using the phrase at the beginning of verse three, by faith. Did you see it there? This is the phrase that he's going to repeat over and over and over again. Every time it's a new character, he'll introduce that new character by saying, by faith, and then he'll recount someone's tale. And like I said, today we're going to look at Abel and Enoch and Noah, but The first character that he mentions happened before Noah, before Enoch, before Abel, and it was us. He talks about creation. He goes all the way to the first pages of our Bibles to say, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Now, when he wrote this, he wasn't thinking to himself, you know, in a couple thousand years, there's gonna be this great evolution creation debate that exists. And so I want to write about that debate. No, what he was thinking of was in his era, a group of people who believed that what was created came from something rather than from nothing. That is actually the debate still today. But what he announces is what is seen was made out of things that are visible. Now, I should mention, of course, that what this shows us right away is that faith is not some nonsensical, ridiculous thing. It will sometimes go above our human reasoning, but it is not unreasonable. And part of the reason we could say that is because belief in a creator God is a logical belief. I want you to listen and follow along with me to this statement from a pastor that I love named David Guzik. Many of you have read his online commentary at EnduringWord.com. Millions of people use it every single month, and I'm excited because he's actually going to come this summer and speak to us on a Sunday morning. Can't wait to have him share with us, but he said this about this passage. He said, this isn't against reason. Consider this reasonable and rational statement. The greatest system our world has ever seen was designed by a great engineer. Does that take great intelligence? 
No, it is very reasonable. It's a rational statement. Or this, the design of creation has an intelligent designer behind it. These are entirely rational statements, truths for us to understand. Oftentimes, the conflict in our modern world between science and scripture is unnecessary. We as Christians rejoice over science and celebrate living in a scientific technological age. Nevertheless, we also understand that God created us with the ability to investigate and know science. Proverbs 25 verse 2 says, It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. I relate this to scientific inquiry. It's as if God has planted all throughout the cosmos his wisdom, principles, and design, concealing them and then inviting man to discover what he's made. The scientist who discounts God should search further. If they continue on in an honest scientific inquiry, they would be led toward God, not away from him. It's not that they know too much, but too little. You see, in modern science, so often what is said is, what is seen was made out of other visible things. But of course, the question that's brought up in response is, well, where did those visible things come from? What Scripture says is that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. In other words, God, an invisible creator God, was the initiator of the cosmos. It says in 2 Peter 3, verse 5, that humanity deliberately overlooks this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Now, all that said, it really isn't the concept that the author is trying to deal with in this verse. Hebrews 11, verse 3, is more so designed to say that faith says that there is power in what God says. Faith is confident in God's word. In other words, there was a time when God spoke, and his voice was so powerful that the cosmos came into being as a result of his word. So now today, when God speaks into my life, when I read in his word a promise or an attribute or a behavior or a characteristic that he wants me to pursue, when I read about it, I know that his word is right, true, powerful, good, because it was by his word that he created. And I believe that. So faith trusts the word of God. Listen, life Life is hard. Life is hard. There is adversity, challenges, difficulties, circumstances that just seem unfair, nonsensical, and violate our logic and our minds. Things happen to us that cause us to say, why? Why did this occur? Why did this happen? Why did this go down? But faith, it trusts the Lord and his word. Despite what it sees here on earth, it looks to God and his character and what he reveals of himself in his word, and it believes it. Think about this episode in the life of Jesus. Early on in his ministry, there was a day where he was teaching the people at the Sea of Galilee. I would have loved to have been there and listened to him teach the, 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 the word of God that day. He just declared God to the people. He, he, he taught them. He preached. Them. They came for healings, and he said, oh, that's cool, but I'm going to teach you. Eventually, the crowd got so big that they were pressing in upon him, and so he developed a little bit of a relationship and friendship with a man named Peter, and Peter was a fisherman, and he had a boat, and so he asked if he could borrow Peter's boat. He got into Peter's boat and pushed out a little bit from the shore, and the people stood on the shore, and Jesus kind of used the natural acoustics with the water and the seashore and all of that to speak to the people. He continued to teach them. After he was finished speaking his message to the people, he looked at Peter and he said, hey, take this boat, cast out, and go cast out your nets again. Now, Peter had been fishing all night the night before, and he'd caught nothing. If you've ever worked a graveyard shift, you know what you are ready to do at the end of that graveyard shift, and it is not listen to a sermon. It is something else. Peter was ready to go to sleep, but this is what he said to Jesus. 
He said, Master, Luke 5, verse 5, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. It's as if Peter was saying, if there were any other human being on the face of the earth who right now looked at me and said, go out and cast your net one more time, I'd say to him, no way, that's not happening. But because you said it, Jesus, because you spoke it, I've watched you, I've observed you, I've seen your character, your love, your nature, your power, your ability, and so in this moment that violates my senses, my mind, and my experience, I am going to do what you, Lord Jesus, have asked me to do. That is what faith does. It trusts in the word of God. All right, let's move on and look in verse four at our first real character, this man named Abel. It says in verse four, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now we go from creation to Adam and Eve's son, a man named Abel. Notice that we skip Adam and Eve. They didn't make it into this chapter, and probably for obvious reasons. I think they had a comeback, though, and they raised Abel right. They taught him about the Lord. And there came a moment in Abel's life, we learn from this passage and from the Old Testament, that he offered an acceptable sacrifice to God. And as a result, God received it, and he was commended as righteous. And it's alluded to here in verse 4, but after God accepted his gifts, he died. Now, the way he died was at the hands, unfortunately, of his brother Cain. Cain also, the Bible tells us, offered his own sacrifice. And after offering his sacrifice, God rejected it. And having seen God receive his brother's sacrifice, Cain grew jealous. The jealousy stirred within his heart until God confronted him. He said, Cain. Sin is lying at the door. It is asking for you, but you must rule over it. You need to do the right thing right now. You can offer the right kind of sacrifice to me, but Cain did not listen to the Lord, and that jealousy grew into a murderous jealousy, and the first fratricide was committed as Cain struck his brother Abel in the field. Abel lived a short period of time. He exited the biblical scene very quickly, but he lived a life of faith when he offered that faith sacrifice to God. Now, it's interesting because scholars and Christians since this time, reading the story of Cain and Abel, have tried to figure out what the difference is between their two sacrifices. And I've read all kinds of theories about what was different between their two sacrifices. In other words, why did God receive Abel's and why did God reject Cain's? Some have said, well, it's because Abel offered a blood sacrifice instead of something from the produce of the land. Even though years later, God established in addition to blood sacrifices, the sacrifice of produce in a meal or grain offering to God. Some say, well, Abel's sacrifice was living and Cain's was lifeless. Some say that Abel's sacrifice was of the firstborn of the flock, but that Cain's was not of the first fruits of the crop. Some think that Abel's was stronger, while Cain's was weaker. Some think that what God wanted was something that grew spontaneously, livestock, rather than something that grew with human ingenuity, a crop. But the reality is the Bible doesn't talk about any of those things with Cain and Abel. Here's what the Bible says. We read it in verse four. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. Why did God receive Abel's sacrifice and reject Cain's? Because Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. When he came to God, he did not offer a work to God. Where he said, God, I deserve to be heard by you by what I am giving to you. No, he said, God, I'm here by faith. I'm believing that you must make the way for me to be in your presence. This sacrifice isn't my work, my ticket into your presence. 
It's a way for me to buy faith, worship, and love and adore you. I'm giving it to you, not so I can earn your audience, but because I believe by faith I get into your throne room. Cain, apparently, by his works, tried to approach the Lord. This is a classic, if you will, faith and works, or faith versus works passage. But the Bible teaches us that the way to God is by faith. That's why number four, I wanted you to see faith is the way to God. We don't get to God based on our own merit. Listen to this in Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. How do we get to God? We get there by grace. We get there by faith. But here's the thing that Christians often do. We often stop right there. I don't get to God by my works. And so we just stop right there. I'm not gonna approach God by my works. I'm not gonna try to earn an audience with him. I'm not gonna try to earn it. I'm not gonna try to earn it. But God is saying, hey, but you still should come. You should come by faith, though. And that's what Abel did. He came to the Lord. And like Abel, we should approach God by laying our lives down before him in faith, saying, Lord, would you receive me? Lord, would you use me? Lord, would you operate through and in my life? Like the prophet Isaiah, we should say, here I am, Lord, send me. That's a prayer of faith. All right, now number five, as we move on in our passage, faith number five pursues God. It pursues God. We get this from the story of Enoch next in verse five and six. Let's read it together. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, some of you, I'm sure, are newer to the Bible and you don't know about this man named Enoch. You don't know about this character. You're like, who's Enoch? And what does it mean that he was taken up so that he should not see death. His story is recorded for us in Genesis chapter five. In Genesis chapter five, uh, we have a long record of the genealogy of Adam and Eve through the line of Seth, their son who came after Abel and Cain. And in that line, you get this long list of people who lived so-and-so, such-and-such many years and begat so-and-so and then lived and died. And then it tells us how long they lived their lives. And the lifespans are phenomenally long. Apparently, in those pre-Noahic flood conditions on earth, people were just living a super long time. I was talking to the men at this men's conference I was teaching at this weekend about Adam and Eve and their marriage and how they were married for over 900 years. It's a long time. It's a long time. So they lived a long time. And, and Enoch was the seventh generation removed from Adam. But because of the long lifespans, he actually would have lived about 300 years concurrent with Adam. So they walked the earth at the same time. So he heard about the Lord, he heard about creation, and he believed in the Lord. It was a crazy time apparently on earth because a few years removed from his lifetime, God gave commentary to that time when he said, the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It was depravity to the furthest extreme. But in the midst of all that, what did Enoch do? Well, it says twice in Genesis chapter five that Enoch walked with God. We use that phrase all the time, walk with God, walk with God. I wanna walk with God. How's your walk with God? I'm just walking with God. I'm trying to walk with God. But the reality is the Bible doesn't use that phrase hardly at all. Twice it's used of Enoch, once it's used of Noah, and it's barely used any other times outside of those two men. Enoch was one of those who walked, though, with God. When he turned 65 years old, he had a child. And at age 65, he named that child Methuselah, and it was at that moment that he began to walk with God. I think he's a lot like many modern parents, kind of doing their own thing. Then they have a kid, and they're like, I need Jesus. <laughs> I need the Lord. 
But notice what it says there. If you put that back on the screen, it says in verse 24 of Genesis 5 that Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. He is one of the two Old Testament characters who did not taste death. Elijah and Enoch came to the end of their sojourn here on earth and God just took them home to be with himself in heaven. It's a fascinating tale, a fascinating story. God brought him home because he pleased God because he just walked with the Lord. So the, I wanted you to see this, that faith, well, it pursues God. That's what Enoch was doing when he walked with God. He just slowly but surely, daily, for 300 years, went out to spend time with God. Now, I love this because the image of walking with God, it's just so, if I could say it like this, doable. When you talk about running, you know, if some, someone goes to you like, hey, you want to go on a run with me? You, don't you have some questions like, how far, how fast, I don't do that, you know, like, I like chips, you know, like, that's kind of the thing that, that might come to mind. But if someone says, hey, let's go on a walk, usually that's a, that's a more doable thing. Well, I could do that. A, a walk speaks of something that, that you can do for a longer period of time. But it also speaks of agreement between the people that are walking together. This was, was Enoch. God and him had agreed on the destination. They, they were going at the same pace together. It's actually a funny thing to watch Christina and I when we, when we walk together. I'm 6'4", she's 5'3", and so you'd think that with these long legs, I would just smoke her as we're walking together, and she'd have to say, hey, wait up for me, but that's not at all what happens. It's this trippy thing. When I'm walking, I just want to stroll. It's leisure. But she's like, aggressive you know she's moving doing her thing and, and so I'm like hey slow down in fact sometimes we'll hold hands and it's not a romantic thing but it's more like a leash where I'm kind of trying to pull her back to just like stay right here you know kind of thing that's what walking requires you have to be together and that was Enoch he was walking with God the same pace together just slowly step by step day by day enjoying the Lord and he was rewarded it says there in verse 6 that without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. If you don't believe, verse 6, if you don't believe that it is rewarding to seek the Lord, you won't seek the Lord. That's what he's saying. When I was growing up, one of the things that I, I learned many things from my father. I learned many things from my dad. I think I was eight or nine years old, the first time I heard him teach an inductive Bible study seminar where he talked about observing the word, interpreting the word, and applying the word. And I had no idea that that's what I was going to be doing with the rest of my life. You know? But I just heard it, and I'm like, oh, that makes sense. You observe it, you interpret it, you apply it. But the biggest thing that I learned from my father was what it looked like for him at least, to love God. He loved the Lord. He still loves, he's not dead, he's around. He still loves the Lord, still around. But I learned that growing up. He loves God. And whenever I woke up early enough to catch him in the morning time, I always found him in his chair. He had this little chair in the living room. He had his Bible open, his cup of coffee. And I knew that he wasn't there because of duty. I knew he was there because he wanted God to speak to him. He liked hanging out with God. It was his favorite part of the day. And I just learned that, what it looked like to just slowly and steadily walk with God. And I know, now because I've experienced it for so many years, that every day of that experience for him wasn't some fantastic, grandiose moment before God where God every day said to him some earth-shattering truth that altered the course of his life. Can you imagine if that's what it was like every single day to walk with God? It'd be terrible. I mean, it'd be such a schizophrenic kind of life. You know, every, like, I'm going this direction, and now I'm going this direction. No, it's just walking with the Lord. It's just a slow and steady, God is working, God is moving in my life. And it's rewarding to do so. That's why he says God rewards those who seek him. In a classic passage about this, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus taught that when we give or when we pray 
or when we fast. And in saying those three things, he's talking about ministry to others, ministry to God, and denial of the self in fasting. He said in response to all three of those things, and when you do them, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There are a million ways in which those types of obedience to God, walking with God, bring great reward and joy into the Christian's heart and life. All right, let's close by looking at our last character. We could spend a whole day on every one of these people, including this last one, our man Noah. It says in verse seven, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The last thing I want you to see here, number six, is that faith works for God. Faith works for God. You see, Noah, he received a warning from God. God told him that he was going to flood the earth in judgment upon the earth. Look at the screen and read this with me from Genesis 6, verse 13. It says, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. And what follows from that phrase are elaborate and detailed directions for Moses on how to make a massive boat or barge, if you will, that he and his family and the animals would reside in during a time of worldwide cataclysmic judgment from the Lord. And Noah was warned by God about it. And so his response was to, in reverent fear, construct an ark for the saving of his household. Now, in doing this, it required reverent fear. You see, if Noah didn't respect God, didn't have reverence for God, and feared human beings more than he feared God, revered the opinion of people or the opinion of himself more than the opinion of God, he would not have stepped out and for 120 years gone through the process of building that ark. But for 120 years, Noah would have endured the mocking and the scoffing of humanity as he built this ark out in the middle of nowhere, far from any body of water that this ark could reside in. The Bible says in Proverbs 29, verse 25, that the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Noah respected the Lord. He reverenced the Lord. And that reverence caused him to step out in obedience to God. He was building something for God, though it did not make sense to the world around him. You see, Satan wants to lie to you in a million different ways. One lie that he wants to tell you is that you can be saved by your works, what you do for God. We've already talked about that today. He also wants to lie to you and tell you that you can keep your salvation that God has graciously given to you by your works, that if you do enough, you can keep it and retain it. That is also a lie called legalism. But he also wants to lie to you and tell you that you can forget all about doing any works. But the Bible does not teach this. It says in James 2, verse 26, that faith apart from works is dead. You see, as Noah was doing this thing, he was expressing his faith in God. He was working for God, working out the faith that God had put inside of his heart. In fact, a, re- a phrase that's repeated over and over about Noah back in the book of Genesis is this phrase, he did all that God commanded him. Wouldn't you love to have that be the phrase over your life? He, she did all that God commanded them to do. Now, I'm sure that his obedience at times felt impossible. It was costly to build the ark. It would have been embarrassing to build the the ark. It took great focus to do this project, and it took precise obedience. But in so doing, he saved his household. He preached to the world, and he became an heir of the righteousness of God, it tells us there in verse 7. He became a preacher. The world through him was condemned. It says in 2 Peter 2, verse 5, that Noah 
was a herald of righteousness. Now, I don't know exactly how this worked, but I don't imagine Noah doing his carpentry thing up on the deck of the boat, people coming out yelling at him, hey, what are you doing, man? And him standing up with a megaphone and saying, you're gonna die, you better repent. I just think he was doing his thing. I think he was living his life of faith and his life was a message to the people around him that there was something else that was going on, that there was a God who was trying to bring them into repentance. It was a message for 120 years that there is room in the boat if you want to come in. But still the hearts of mankind were hard. I heard a story, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, about Billy Graham and about a man who was not a believer who went golfing with Billy Graham and when he was finished golfing, he was so mad. He went to his car, he threw his clubs in the car and his friend came to him and said, what's going on, why are you so mad? He said, that Billy Graham 18 holes, and he's just preaching to me. He won't stop preaching to me. He won't stop talking to me about Jesus. And the, the friend knew Billy Graham personally, and he thought, you know, I mean, I know he's a preacher. I know he shares the gospel at these crusades, but he likes people. He's, he's sensitive and all that. It just doesn't sound like Billy Graham. And so he asked him, he said, well, what did he say to you exactly? And the guy said, he didn't, well, he didn't say anything. <laughs> he, he was just there. <laughs> Just his presence brought a conviction into his life. And, and I think Noah was that kind of man. But what I want you to see is that faith, it works for God. It does things for God. I want to close by reading to you a last quote from a pastor named Britt Merrick. He pastors a church down in Carpinteria, Reality Carpinteria. It's a great church. And He's a good pastor, and he wrote a book about Hebrews 11 where he really took his time going through this chapter. And he was kind of talking about how Noah was invited to do work with God and for God. And he said, the reality is that God will accomplish his work with you or without you. But he loves you. And because he does, he invites you to participate. Isn't it true that love by nature is, invita is invitational? Love reaches out and includes. That's what love does. God loves you, so he wants to include you in his passions and in his mission. That's why he invites you in. You see, God has a great mission here on earth, and he's inviting his people into that mission, but it takes faith to live out in obedience to the Lord and to be part of his work here on earth, but it is a great work to engage in. So those are some of the statements that we're learning here about faith, that it unlocks assurance, that it leads to specific action, that it's confident in God's word, that it's the way to God, that it pursues God, and that it works for God. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our senior pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.